The company Base10 helps companies build and deploy machine learning APIs and applications. Using pre-existing ML models or choosing from Base10's library of pre-trained models, Base10 helps you instantly deploy API endpoints powered by those models to use in your applications. These APIs easily scale and integrate with existing data sources. Base10's serverless infrastructure enables chaining model outputs when pre- and post-processing code. They also use a drag-and-drop UI builder to create custom UIs for the applications, all without learning React. In this episode, we talk with Tuhin Srivastava, one of the founders of Base10. Tuhin previously founded Shape and also worked as a data scientist at Gumroad. We discuss machine learning API development, scaling ML-driven applications, and the capabilities of Base10's technology. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager, we're looking for a graphic designer, and we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Guys, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having us. There's obviously a wide set of use cases for machine learning, but machine learning remains very hard to productionize. Tell me about the challenges of making machine learning in production. Yeah, absolutely. So just to get started, like, you know, I think it's worth thinking about, you know, what does it mean to have a machine learning model? So a machine learning model is, you know, a set of rules or it's an artifact that's coming out of a common machine learning framework like PyTorch or TensorFlow. And really what you end up with is a binary or a, an artifact in Python that, you, that takes some input and produces some output, output. To get that in production, you have to do a bunch of stuff. So, you know, first thing you need to figure out how to serve that model. And so, you know, Amir can talk a bit more about this, about all the intricacies regarding around how you serve a model. But really what that means is getting it behind some sort of um, web framework um, and having it serve up an API that you can query either live in real time or in batch mode. And so that would be, you know, in a Python, in some Python code, in Airflow, you know, it can exist in many forms. What we really think is like a lot, a big challenge associated with productionization of a model actually comes after you've served that API or you've served that model behind an API. And, And that really comes from one how do you get it integrated back in to an existing system so you know i think the best way to to really think about this is what happens in a traditional use case so the most tried and use case of machine learning that people often talk about is fraud so let's say you have a model you developed it in scikit-learn you've deployed it now what needs to happen so that needs to be integrated back into some business workflow we find this to be actually very, very difficult. And so that means, you know, writing some rules on the output of the model, putting it in front of a human who needs to review the output of the model, 
And then most importantly, having that wrap back from um, the human into the model itself. So establishing that feedback loop of data, decision, human, and then back to data. Um, and we see a whole lot of challenges after the model has been created or has been deployed. And tell me about some of the opportunities you see of simplifying that process of getting machine learning into production. Yeah, absolutely. So the opportunities that we see really is, so from our experience, um, there's actually been a very, very large skills gap. And so the people developing models are generally like research scientists or data scientists. And so they traditionally come from, you know, academic background or they've been analysts and become data scientists and learn some machine learning. Hard, hard thing here, though, is that a lot of these folks, while they're familiar with Python and SQL, aren't necessarily, aren't necessarily interested or able to do, you know, the, the website code. So like, you know, how do I turn this into a Python app? How do I turn this into a Flask app? But also the integration stuff. So like, how will I get this to talk to Salesforce or Slack? Or most, most importantly, um, creating visual interfaces or creating applications that end users can really use. And really that's where we see um, our value or some of the, the most leverage that we can give is by allowing the data scientists to do more of those things after that model comes. So really that's what Base 10 is. And so, you know, Base 10 is a fast way for data scientists to build user-facing applications with machine learning models. What we try to do is put the data scientists first and we give them a set of comprehensive tools so that you know, they can build high-performance, user-centric applications with their models front and center. So you know, the opportunities here are like, what's the fastest way we can allow data scientists to deploy a model? That is put it behind an API. After that, you know, how can we allow, to, how the, allow the data scientists to wrap that model in some custom business logic using just Python and not really having to worry about infrastructure? That we see as a very, very large opportunity. And lastly, like, you know, how can we allow data scientists to build apps and to really get their models in some usable form in front of users or other stakeholders for them? If it's helpful, I can actually even provide an example there. You know, just going back. Please do. Please, please provide an example. Yeah, so like just, just going back, I'll give you a simple example and, and then a quite complex example. So the simple example is that I'm a data scientist and I've come up with a a new model that, you know, let's say it does style transfer. So that takes some existing, um, it takes some existing attributes of an image and it takes a new image and, and superimposes the style from that first image on the latter image. That's great. But that's not really usable by anyone except the data scientists. And so like ha- today what would happen is, you know, either they'd write some, they'd create a Jupyter notebook and have someone come over their shoulders so they can show, the, show it how it works. Or they'll, you know, they'd release a paper and create a GitHub repo with this model so that other people can pull it down. What's really missing there is the ability for people who can't, don't really understand what this model artifact is doing to be able to interact with the inputs and outputs of this model. So with Base 10, what the, what the data scientists would do is they'll deploy it. So we have a you know, pretty simple client-side library. Um, you call Base10.deploy. It works on any, any um, major machine learning framework. And then from that, they'd be able to, firstly, now that model is served, so it's ready to be called from somewhere else. But then within Base 10, um, they could actually write the Python code to surround the inputs and outputs of that model without having to figure out what's a Flask app or how will this API scale. 
And then they'll also be able to really quickly to cobble together that front end. Um, so users can you know, drag an image in and see what happens after that model is run. And so that's really like the toy use case of Base 10, which is what is the easiest way that people can show, can express the value that their model is delivering. The more interesting use case, although maybe not interesting, but the more, the use case which has more value is around what we see as human in the loop workflows. And so, you know, one of the, as I said to you, like, let's just talk about a use case. You know, let's talk about the fraud, the fraud ops use case. So, you know, this is something that I spent a lot of time at, um, doing in from, you know, about five or six years ago, which was, you know, building machine learning models for fraud ops. And so what we, I worked at an e-commerce company. Every time a transaction would happen, you know, we had to flag it or figure out if it was fraudulent. If it was fraudulent, um, we'd then go and basically put it in front of a bunch of human reviewers to uh, human reviewers to look at. And if not, we'd do nothing. If they, if the human reviewer decided that this decided that this transaction was fraudulent, um, it'll trigger a bunch of other workflow steps. So you know, we'd we'd send an email to ourselves to say, "Hey, this happened." We'd write something to our database, and then we'd refund the transaction with Stripe. We'd then ban the user as well, so they couldn't transact anymore. Now, that's an enormous amount of workflow that I just described to you. You can actually do everything that I just described to you within Base 10. So within Base 10, once the data scientists had come up with their model, they'd deploy it. Um, we also do some pretty basic version management and model management. So you know, if they wanted to deploy new versions of the model, once it's updated, they could do that. If they wanted to A-B test models um, against each other, they could do that. But then you could also build all those workflow pieces within Base 10. So the business logic, um, they could write the Python code with us without having to figure out how to deploy this. And they could also then, on top of all that, build that human review workflow. So they could you know, figure, set up a queue view that the, that the operators could look at um, and transact off of, and then also the stuff that happened after they had transacted. So you know, the reintegration into the workflow of the core business. So really what, we, what we're hoping to be able to do is give that data scientist and machine learning engineer a bunch of leverage so they don't have to rely on other product engineers or DevOps engineers or backend engineers to, to flesh out their services. And really what we hope that we will get out of this is, one, the initiation of that feedback loop that I alluded to earlier. And secondly, there'll be more value being shown um, from machine learning because less less models will be blocked at just the very, very early stage um, when training a model. So can you generalize this a little bit? Tell me more about what the average user or the average workflow you see as being a, a less technical, less painful uh, machine learning deployment process. Oh, sure. Yeah, so I, to me, there's really three things that a model needs. So you, you need a way to get that model out of, out of a Jupyter notebook where a lot of data scientists do their work and behind an API so it can be used by other services. So that's, that's the first pillar. The second thing um, you need is integration. So the, the ability to integrate the output of that model back into some other workflow or, or to create a new workflow. So, you know, I, I gave you one example, which was fraud ops. You know, this, this also applies to, say, something like, you know, the, a great example of this would be a recommendation system. So a recommendation system, you know, the model spits out, takes the input of user, it spits out a bunch of 
honestly, really what's spinning out is a, a bunch of weights saying, you know, g given this user, these are the three products with the highest weights. So translating that back into something which is usable by another service actually takes a, quite a bit of business logic. And that's the second part, that uh, the second pillar of base 10, which is integration logic. The third one is, you know, user-facing applications. And, you know, these exist whether they're in um, internal tools, like the fraud ops tool I, I, I described to you, or something external as well, which is, you know, the way, a way to show, to express the power of your models for other humans to be able to interact with it. And re really, once you have all three of these, you can really kick off that feedback loop that I was talking about such that the actions that the human is taking in that user-facing application can really inform the inputs of the model, model so you can iterate on that model. Great. So tell me a little bit more about what you're building at Base 10. What kinds of tooling have you built to support these simplified deployments? Using uh, Twin's uh, examples and, and sort of the flow that he drew out, the storyline that he drew out in terms of steps that a data scientist uh, would need to take uh, in order to bring their model to fruition and to connect it to business value. There are a few systems that we have had to build that help the data scientist in that journey. The first of which is a um, Python client shared on PyPy, pip installable base 10 client that allows the data scientist to pip install base 10 into the environment where their model is trained and with one easy command line be able to upload that model uh, to base 10's infrastructure. The second piece is base 10's backend infrastructure which is built from the ground up using Kubernetes for go-to-market reasons, actually. We have noticed that a lot of our users and potential users want to deploy base 10 within their own infrastructure, within their own VPC. And because of that, building it from the ground up using Kubernetes has given us a lot of leverage. What we do in our backend is take the user's model that was uploaded through that first step and serve it, put it behind an API, and have it be monitored. And so what the data scientist gets at the end of that step is a simple API endpoint where they can call the model. But as Tuin said, that's just the beginning of the journey. The next step is we allow the data scientists to be able to write Python code, their own custom business logic written in Python without having to worry about dockerizing it, Kubernetes services, putting it behind Flask. Without having to worry about any of those things, we allow them to write Python code, give them access over the environment that executes that Python code in terms of what third-party packages are installed there, what versions, and we execute their code. This is where, in particular, we're standing on the, sh the shoulders of giants, in particular using the latest serverless development within the Kubernetes umbrella. 
And in particular, I mean the Knative project, which is allowing us to much more easily than before take code from untrusted sources and be able to execute them in a secure fashion with isolation and with a scalability built into it. And finally is the front end of Base10, where our end users, the data scientists, can see the different models that they have deployed, can manage those versions, can write Python code, their custom business logic that interacts with those models using a VS code in the browser. And, and this is the final piece of it, where is our UI builder that Tuhin was describing, where we allow data scientists to be able to create user-facing interfaces without having to learn React, JavaScript, HTML, and be able to bring their models and their custom backend logic that they have written in based on, bring those to life, put a face on them, and be able to share them cross-functionally and have other, have their end users interact with those applications. And just to add to that, you know, like the really like, you know, I may describe pretty in depth that like the three different parts of base 10, all the tooling that we're exposing for our end users. And I think what's really unique about our approach is that, you know, for all of these things, you know, the, there are pre-existing ways to do these things. Um, you know, I think on the mobile deployment side, you know, whether it be SageMaker or whether it be people spinning out Flask apps just to get something served, you know, this already like, this is a real pain, and that we have talked to a lot of users about. It's, it's slow, it's cumbersome, it's it's skills that they, data scientists and machine learning engineers don't have, but it already exists. I think with the you know with the serverless work. Again, like we've seen the rise of lambdas and cloud functions, and more and more stuff is being built using those technologies. But we, we really think there's like not so much taking this the complexity away completely, but just shifting it away from the end user so they can just focus on what's what's important to them. And for a data scientist as a user, that's really glue code that goes around the model. You know, it's integrations back into um, existing services. But we're really trying to abstract that away from the user and, and really allow them to just focus on what matters to them. And then thirdly, on the front end side, you know, we've seen a lot of great companies being built in the last few years. You know, it, like one, one that we draw a lot of inspiration from is, um, is Retool. You know, Retool is amazing. And, you know, we've seen what they, you know, I, I'd say like three or four years ago, everyone would have said, no, you can't build internal applications in this way. We, we would have said that, to be honest. Like, we didn't believe that. But I, I think... I think they've really put on a clinic on how you can abstract away um, complexities that users don't need to know and really focus on the job that that user is trying to do. And when we bring all these three things together, we really do think that we're able to give data science and machine learning engineers um, leverage that they haven't had before. Yeah, one principle that we started from the get-go was to make sure that we make easy things easy, but hard things possible. So as an example, when it comes to model deployment, if all you have is, let's say, a scikit-learn random forest classifier, 
really it should be as easy as one line to be able to deploy that. A lot of magic happens behind the scenes, but to you as a data scientist, the interface should really be that simple. However, in some cases, your model doesn't fall into these buckets and is something very custom. And so we've had to create ways for those harder situations to also be handled in a relatively simple way. Same thing when it comes to writing code within Base 10 and having Base 10 execute that. Sometimes that's really simple code and sometimes your code relies on third-party packages, some of which are, are not on PyPy and, and they are yours and, and you need to bring those somehow. Again, those are harder things, but those are also possible. So it's striking this fine balance between making the, the simplest cases be a breeze, but making sure that as soon as the needs of the data scientist diverges from those simple, that we don't throw our arms up and say, we don't support that. So you you gave the analogy to retool, and I think of retool is pretty interesting for changing the way that internal workflows work for these kinds of simple internal tools that people need. How do you expect a tool like Base 10, sort of a, a, a workflow reducer or workflow simplifier, how do you expect that to change the overall cadence or workflow of uh, machine learning deployments? Uh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think it kind of, you know, strikes at the heart of why um, we started Base 10. So, you know, wh- why we started Base 10 was we've been doing machine learning since, honestly, like as a team, like in different capacities in 2009. Um, my, my, our co-founder, Phil, you know, was competing in the Netflix prize back in the day in, um, when that had come out. And I think what we've seen over the last decade, it's like, you know, we, we, were, we were enamored by it and by machine learning a decade ago, and we were so excited about all the possibilities that it would enable. And we, we truly think that it's going to have a profound impact on the way that we work and we, you know, we live really. But what we've realized is that, you know, the impact hasn't been seen. And like I, over the last year and a half, I've spent, you know, countless meetings talking to CIOs at large companies all the way from like, you know, CIOs at, you know, some of the biggest airlines in the world, all the way down to, you know, data scientists at three or four person companies and machine learning initiatives for the most part are failing. You know, very few people can point to um, real machine learning that people are doing. And, and what, what, we, what we hope to do with Base 10 is like, you know, if, if by simplifying all these things that we just described to you, is that just make the cost of failure a lot, lot lower. And, and what we hope is that, you know, if, if, if we make it very, very easy to go from zero to one, so, you know, the day you have the simplest of models working, you know, you can have a prototype in front of someone that they can play with. Or, you know, as soon as you have a model that you want to iterate with users with, you can create that interface or you can create that integration so they can start to interact with it without you needing, you know, it's like six to eight weeks of engineering effort to make that work. What we hope is like, you know, bring this cost of failure down to be very, very low. And if we can in fact do that, I think what will happen is that one, you know, people won't be scared to try machine learning. The amount of teams that we've talked to that are like, yeah, we know this data, we know machine learning can solve the problem, but you know, we also know that it's more than just coming up with a model. And so they, you know, keep putting it off. And so 
you know, what we hope is that bringing down, bringing down that cost is that we can really just reduce the barrier to entry. There'll be more people willing to fail. And, you know, I, I believe that when more people are willing to fail, you know, there's just going to be more attempts at things. And really over time, we'll just see more machine learning. Kind of like drawing that back to the retool analogy that you referred to. Like, I do believe that, you know, there are more internal tools today because of retool. And I think what the reason for that is they just made it very, very easy to put together something very, very simple. And it didn't matter if it didn't ship. It's at least at least you tried and at least you were able to make some headway and not give up. And I think like similar to if I do believe that, that retool has enabled more more internal tools, I, I, I do believe also similarly that we hope that more people will do more machine learning. And if I may give two examples of this, Two different examples, but they do point in, in this direction where tools like Base 10 can help spur more initiatives. One is at a uh, large fintech uh, startup in Neobank where they already have applied machine learning in particular in the area of fraud. And they have a team of machine learning engineers ML ops, etc., supporting supporting these efforts. The support structure is already in place for the fraud model in particular. Now, the data scientists there tell us that they have lots of other ideas where they think applying machine learning can help in the areas of customer support, uh, customer success. However, the barrier to entry is quite high. If they get a model up and running, trained rather, and they want to now deploy it into their infrastructure, the infrastructure that is built for this fraud model model in particular, the cost of getting this, this new model into this infrastructure is weeks. Weeks of working with DevOps, infra, security, and making sure that your model can now be served uh, within the model serving infrastructure that they have. And because of that, what they end up spending their time on is not these new greenfield projects, but instead they work on making that one fraud model 1% better, more features, feature engineering, etc. Now with base 10, what they could do, what they did, was to actually explore those other uh, initiatives, those other use cases of machine learning, because they saw the path where if it did work, uh, they could easily build applications with it, serve it, and build UI around it, and ultimately ship it to be used uh, by customer experience uh, in this example. So that's, that's one example where there's already uh, ML in place, but the barrier of getting a new model into the existing ML infrastructure is quite high and tooling like Base 10 can help. The second example is a bit different and it's going to touch upon a part of Base 10 that we haven't talked about so far. This one is, the second case is a mental health startup where uh, they have an application that their patients use and they can 
as part of the application, provide freeform text. Now, the mental health startup has to review these, this freeform text and look for signs of self-harm. They have an engineering team. They don't have any ML folks, and they're quite new to ML. But we gave them the idea that within Base 10, you can actually spin up this review queue tool uh, very quickly, and very quickly you can add machine learning to it. We have what we call a model mage, a library of pre-trained models, open source models, that we have put together and made it very accessible for someone who doesn't know too much about ML, who can come in, see the different use cases that these models can attack, choose one, and very quickly play around with it, give it new input, see how it behaves. And so in this case, the case of the mental health startup, we onboarded them, and very quickly they ended up with this review queue that they could put in front of the clinical operations team to review the freeform text submitted by the patients, ranked by the, the output of the machine learning model that they used that determines whether there are signs of self-harm in the freeform text or not. And all that was, by the way, was a pre-trained zero-shot classification model that hadn't seen anything about self-harm in particular, but configured correctly can, right out of the box, without any additional training, perform really well in determining self-harm in freeform text. And so these two examples, I think, show that tools like Base10 can really lower the barrier for exploring machine learning and applications thereof and finding new ways to, to add value where it was not possible or easy before. So can you give a little bit more on the interface of Base10? Like, are you a CLI tool? Are you an API? Are you like a, a low-code visualization system? Give a little bit more about the user experience. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, the... Un- the good and bad answer to that question is that it's all of the above. The first interface that a data scientist or machine learning engineer would have with Base 10 is at the CLI level. So as, as Amir mentioned earlier, it's a pip installable package. It's as simple as import Base 10 and Base10.deploy. And so you'll basically upload your model to Base 10 from the CLI. Once you're there, you're going to end up with basically a very, very simple model management page on Base 10. Co, and then you'll be able to look at the models, you'll be able to look at different versions of the models, see how to call that model. And so that, I think that's step one. That's, you know, and we see this as integration cost, but that's step one. The, the next part of the interface is basically something that looks like Google Cloud Functions or Amazon Lambdas, where you're basically able to write serverless code and put your model in the middle of that. So you're writing code in the browser, you're writing, it's a VS Code instance, the Monaco editor that we're using, and you'll be able to write that code and test that code in the browser, even trigger it, you know, attach a cron job to trigger it. You know, basically all the things you would need for a very, very, for a simple but powerful backend service. But you're configuring that primarily in the browser. You know, we, we know, like, you know, frankly, that this is 
this is probably one of the more controversial parts of Base 10 about um, writing that code in the browser. But, you know, our users are used to tools like Domino Data Lab and Data Eco, and th there is some precedent there. The third part of Base 10 is a drag and drop UI builder. Again, like pretty similar to something like Retool where you're um, kind of dragging components onto the page and configuring them to um, interact with user input and then integrate with that backend service that you I described a second ago. Tell me about some of the engineering problems in bringing Base 10 to market. We have had plenty of those, some of which, now that I look back, they seem easy in retrospect, but at first they were quite challenging. One of the first ones was, again, when we were trying to design that interface that allows the data scientists to give us their model for us to serve it, and building it in a way, designing it in a way that allows for, again, the simple cases to remain simple, but for the complex cases to also be possible. And striking that balance between magic uh, and configurability. Let me add a time dimension to this discussion because I think it, it makes it more interesting. The very first version of Base 10 that we put out there uh, for a few users to use was a proof of concept that was built with as few components uh, as possible, as quickly as possible. The backend architecture was pretty much a Django backend running uh, on Heroku. And we wanted to prove to ourselves that this product and this product, this product direction has wings. Once that was proven to us, thankfully in parallel, we learned a lot uh, from our users in terms of their requirements on how they wanted their code to be executed and the kind of flexibilities that they wanted. And also what I alluded to before, which is what environment they, they what uh, sort of VPCs they would be okay with their code to be executed. And in particular, uh, not being okay with base 10 to be hosting their code and their data. And so all of those learnings helped us arrive at the current architecture that is Kubernetes based from the ground up and uses Knative and on top of that, KF serving for model deployment and serving, and also Knative directly for running the user submitted code in isolation securely and with scaling, auto scaling, including scaling down to zero built into it. That journey was one that I'm really glad that we took, even though it resulted in a lot of code that we ended up throwing away. But I don't think we would have arrived at the current architecture if it wasn't for building something that works end-to-end -end as quickly as possible, putting it in front of users, and learning from those interactions. Another very challenging aspect uh, of 
of base 10 in terms of engineering has been this UI builder, this front-end view builder that we were talking about. How do we allow end users who are not engineers, have probably never interacted with React, don't know the abstractions there, aren't familiar with those. How do we allow them to build complex user interfaces in a way that they feel like they understand how the different pieces are connected to each other, how the front end connects to the back end that they have created, uh, to the models that they have deployed. That was a product meets engineering challenge. And what we ended up doing there is taking a lot of inspiration uh, from React and Redux, our learnings from using those ourselves, learning from the abstractions that those provide and exposing those to end users, to our users, to the data scientists in a way that is understandable for them. And also building it all in a way that is composable down the line so that uh, our users can create their own composite components and reuse those across the applications within the organizations as time evolves. That was another interesting balancing act uh, that we had to do where we wanted to build something that can support that future without having to necessarily build it today, uh, but knowing that we didn't want to throw our front-end architecture away once it got to the point where we wanted to support those more complex features. So that also took a couple of tries. There was also a lot of throwaway code involved, but again, building something end-to-end early on. Think of it as, imagine you're building a, a, a large pipeline uh, that, that needs to be you know, very thick going from point A to point B, instead of building these large thick parts one by one and finally connecting them to each other, what we strive to do was to build a very thin pipe that goes end to end and showing that to users, learning from that, and then slowly you know, thickening you know, certain parts of that pipe, which again involved some throwaway code, but I don't think again we would have arrived uh, at the current architecture if it wasn't for those uh, end-to-end experiments that we did that we did early on. The market for machine learning tooling is obviously pretty crowded, and it's tough to get people to try out your tool because it, there's so much overhead to onboarding and integration. What's your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, um, you know, this has also been something that we've been working on. And, you know, I think I think you're 100% right in saying that the market for machine learning tooling is very, very, you know, it's crowded. That's for sure. And I think more importantly, everyone says they do a little bit of everything. Early on, we started working with large enterprises um, and kind of used them as our design partners. And we, and we very quickly realized that those problems didn't necessarily map to the problems of the end user, who we were trying to help. And so what we realized was that 
a lot of the companies in the space were also kind of making that mistake where, you know, they were going, you know, whether it's a mistake or whether it's, you know, they were taking that approach of going top down, finding the CIO who wants to do some machine learning and then figuring out the buyer in that way. We, we think that's going to be necessary for us um, at some point, especially for larger contracts and larger for larger in, um, installations of Base 10. But really what we learned, I'd, I'd say like towards the end of last year, was that there's not that many tools that data scientists love and machine learning engineers love. And we, we actually went in, you know, as like a, after like as a, I remember a certain number, like couple of weeks at the end of last year where we sat down and we just re- reached out to a bunch of folks that we've been talking to and asked them, hey, could you, could you describe the tools that you that you're really excited to use, um, and we realized that those are very, very small subset of this. You know, I think data scientists, you know, they love a lot of them love like their Jupyter notebooks. A lot of them, you know, love Airflow. Um, what what we were really, really excited by was this possibility, this new, the emergence of this new thing that data scientists were expressing was like, you know, they they wanted tools that would help them show their work off to other folks, and that's really what's been our go-to-market strategy for the last little bit, which is let's build something that an individual data scientist can adopt by their own. You know, the first time they have a model that they want to show off to people, we want to be their first protocol. Now, what we really hope is that they'll end up building internal tools within Base 10 for their models. And because our architecture allows us, like, you know, we'll, we'll scale with their use case, but that's to be determined whether we get there. But for now, we're super, super focused on adding value for the individual data scientist, machine learning engineer. And then also in parallel to that, having those conversations with those larger teams. So we are aware of the use cases for when we do need to make that expansion. So as an example of that, you know, one of the things that you'll hear a lot when you go and talk to a um, larger team of data scientists say inside that fintech company that Amir mentioned earlier is version control. You know, you need ways to ver- version code. You need ways to version applications. Um, you need separate kind of versioning and publishing flows and deployment flows of the application itself. The individual data scientist doesn't really care about that today. And so while, you know, we are working with a larger larger company, a design partner to get those requirements right now from a product perspective, we're really, really trying to make it easy for um, individual data scientists to one, get onboarded, to see, get that aha moment you know, basically be able to understand very, very quickly the possibilities, hopefully within 10 or 15 minutes of using Base 10 and then using that word of mouth or love from that data scientist to kind of build up cred within an organization and with other teams, if that makes sense. Totally. So give me a little bit more about your general assessment for how data science and machine learning workflows evolve over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. I think there's like three, three things that I would mention here. So the first one I would say is there's an increasing prevalence of, of really, really good pre-trained models. I think, you know, um, if you look at, if you look at hugging face, you're familiar with them They're you know, they, they provide natural language processing models in kind of this standardized format, but really, you know, I'd say, Every single chat we have with a user or a potential user who's using natural language processing, they're using Hugging Face, and they, they are often data scientists. So that, that's the first one: is that you know an increased prevalence of of, of an increased prevalence of pre-trained models, and like 
that's the first thing we're going to factor in. The second one is every single engineer graduating college today, or a very, very large majority of them have taken a course in machine learning or data science. You know, I, I think, and I, I think that's a really important point. It's because they were able to, you know, this wasn't the case a decade ago. You know, most of my engineer friends probably still, you know, they have a high, you know, for, for them, machine learning um, is, is, is broadly represented by stuff like the very, very public stuff. So, you know, like OpenAI, GPT-3 and stuff like that. But more and more, you know, new grads and engineers know what machine learning engine, machine learning can do for them. And they may even know how to train a basic model. And so, like, you know, taking those two things together, I think the workflows are actually going to expand in two ways. So the first one is going to, they're going to, they're going to make it really easy for people to get started with models that already exist. You know, if you can frame the problem, there's going to be stuff off the shelf for you to get started. And then the workflow will involve a tuning step. By tuning, what I mean is, you know, you get a model, you run the model, you, it spits out a bunch of outputs and then a user gives feedback to the model about how they classified, um, how it did. And that model, that is used to kind of update that model itself and fit it to the particular use case. And then really, you, you really have to start to think, okay, if more people can do machine learning, then the tools will kind of update to represent that prior. And so um, what we'll see is a lot more tooling, not so much involved around, you, know, you will see more tooling that allows um, people to go from zero to one with models and integrate it back into workflows. I, th- I think the second thing is just leverage. Um, I think um, a company that I really love um, is Vercel which allows front-end engineers to deploy their websites and really gives them kind of full-stack powers without really um, exposing them exposing them to that complexity. And I think that's exactly how, in my mind, the, the machine learning tooling market will evolve and the workflows will evolve, which will be how can we give data science to machine learning engineers who, who are pretty you know, technical themselves. You know, they know a bit of Python. Or they know quite a lot of Python. They know SQL. Maybe they know some Julia. Um, how do we interact with these tools and give them leverage to do more. And I think, you know, you're kind of seeing this um, across the stack. So even with stuff like um, Tekton, which is the feature store, that to me is giving data scientists and machine learning engineers kind of like this um, data engineering superpower, this ability to manage their features without having to think about, you know, all the complexities that go into uh, tracking, tracking computed data over time. They're the two different things. So the first one will be, you know, to accommodate a, a whole new set of users who know machine learning but may not be experts but can can use models. So what what does what does the new tooling look like to support those users? And secondly, um, how can we give data science and machine learning engineers um, more and more leverage so they can focus on the stuff that really matters, which is making their models really good and improving their data, which in result, which as a result will will end up with you know better models and then we hope that better models will fuel actual outcomes and then people will invest more into machine learning. Okay, well, thank you both for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about Base 10. Thank you. I um, really appreciate your time.